the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There is new work on one of the great enigmas of modern American history, Richard Nixon, and it is titled Being Nixon. The subtitle is A Man Divided, and the author is Evan Thomas. Mr. Thomas has written quite a number of books and is highly regarded uh, in the field of biography. Evan Thomas, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Hi, Dennis. Hi there. So uh, let's start with your subtitle. What is he divided between? Pretty basic, uh, light and dark. Uh, you know, we have this dark view of Nixon, or I think a lot of your listeners do, that he was wicked and evil and all that. And I just, that's not true. That's not the real Nixon. The real Nixon was a complicated guy who wanted to be optimistic and upbeat when he came into a room, when he came home. He would come in the door whistling, turn on all the lights, put a show tune on the record player, want to be upbeat. He always tried to give confidence to his family and to his friends. At late at night, he would write notes to himself about being joyful, serene, confident, inspiring. Now, these are words we don't always associate with Nixon, because he couldn't really be that person all the time or in the end, but he wanted to be that person. And I, it's just the premise of my book that there was a struggle between the Nixon who wanted to be upbeat and confident, and often was, and the less happy, the, the darker side, if you will, the guy who's haunted by his demons and obsessed with his enemies. What were his demons? His biggest demon, I think the, the, the focus of it was what he called the East Coast establishment. The old, uh, he believed the old liberal East Coast establishment was out to get him. And you know, he was not wrong. I know this personally. I worked for the Washington Post Company for 24 years. I was a Washington bureau chief at Newsweek for 10 years. I went to dinner at Catherine Graham's many times, the owner of the Washington Post, and I, I know that world. I'm from that world. And they were out to get Richard Nixon was not, you know, people say paranoids have enemies. Well, the Washington Post Company, that East Coast establishment, was, was out to get Nixon. And in the end, they did. Uh, but Nixon... You know, his his fatal flaw, his kind of tragic flaw, was that he was obsessed with his enemies. He he sort of made it happen by his desire to lash out at his enemies. He made them worse. He You know, he tried to take away the post-broadcast licenses. That was a mistake. Uh, it's always a mistake to get into a fight with a big national newspaper. Um, and it, in the end, it destroyed him. But he wasn't wrong in his in his in his hatreds well yes he was wrong in his hatred he wasn't wrong in his resentments he had a lot to resent okay well let me just understand something where wasn't the east coast and to this day is the North, the east coast liberal establishment against all conservatives slash republicans or were they specifically out to get nixon they were worse on Nixon because it's mixed in not just with ideology. Actually, Nixon was not all that conservative. Well, I know. I'm going to get to that. I, I as a conservative, 
never considered him. I don't, it's the puzzle of my life. It's part of the reason I want you on. I want you to perhaps help me resolve the puzzle of why this man is called a conservative. But but I, I don't want to get to that now. I want to understand, did they dislike Richard Nixon or they disliked any Republican? They disliked Richard Nixon more than most Republicans. When he was operating, there was still a lot of Republican, Northeast Republican moderates. A lot of that East Coast establishment was... You know, John Lindsay of New York, he was a... Well, all right, exactly, yes. Nelson Rockefeller, I I understand. All right. That was a big brand. All right, but any non-liberal, in other words, did they dislike Nixon more than Goldwater? Yes, it's a little bit hard to get at, because what they disliked about Nixon had to do with class and style. Uh, Nixon could could be mawkish and overly sentimental. You remember the Checkers speech? Yep. That was the most watched, the early days of TV, biggest audience ever. And it was, it was a speech that, just to give a tiny bit of background, Nixon was the vice presidential candidate for Dwight Eisenhower. And uh, the New York Post got a hold of a story that Nixon had a slush fund. And it was a fake story. It was a phony story. But the press got onto it, and Nixon had to go on national TV to rescue his candidacy because Eisenhower was about to dump him. And the speech was very effective, but it was kind of sentimental. It was a little bit cloying, if you will. Uh, Nixon talked about his personal life and Pat and his, his wife Pat and her good Republican cloth coat and his kids and his dog named Checkers. And the East Coast establishment people thought it was overly sentimental, kind of mawkish, and they, they thought it was sort of classless or low class and held it against It was a fantastically effective speech. It worked. But Nixon was resented for it, and Nixon felt that resentment. This is all the way back in 1952. Even before that, Nixon really got crosswise with the East Coast establishment when he went after Alger Hiss. Some of your listeners will remember who Alger Hiss was. He was a Harvard Law School-trained State Department uh, friend of Secretary of State Atchison and Dulles and real card-carrying member of the establishment. Nixon, a young congressman, green congressman, exposed Alger Hiss as a Soviet spy, which he was. This was tremendously embarrassing to the people who read the New York Times and the Washington Post who liked Alger Hiss and thought that Alger Hiss was being unfairly maligned by the red baiters. Nixon proved that, no, actually, Hiss really was working for Moscow. And Nixon got on the wrong side of the establishment doing this. He embarrassed the Harvards and the Yales. He embarrassed them. And they were out to get him for that. And, and as I said, they did. It took a long time. It was a long fight. Uh, but in the end, they got him. Well, he got himself in a, in a, to a certain extent. He did. I, look, yeah. I, I don't minimize. No, no, no. But I understand. He did have enemies. Your, your, your points are totally well taken. L- let's go, though, back to the parts of Nixon's life that I think few people know about. Why did why did Dwight Eisenhower pick him as his vice presidential running mate? Purely pragmatic. Uh, Eisenhower didn't know Nixon personally at all, but Nixon was a bridge to the conservative wing of the Republican Party, the so-called old guard. The Republican Party then was more of a mixture of moderates and liberals and conservatives than it is today, but there was a strong conservative wing, and Nixon was identified with the conservatives, anti-communist, also, West Coast from California, uh, Eisenhower, you know, although he's from Kansas, was more associated with the East Coast establishment, needed California, 
And uh, Nixon was young and vigorous. Uh, Ike was a little old, you know, he's 60-some years old by then. And uh, uh, Nixon was a new generation, uh, young naval officer in World War II. So he had a lot going. He was very vigorous. And what was vibrant. his position at the time? He was a, a U.S. senator. He had just knocked off Helen Gahagan Douglas in a famous race in California. Well, is, is that... 38-year-old California U.S. senator. Is that race really uh, as bad as people depicted in terms of no, Nixon's tactics? No. One thing I try to do in this book is there's a lot of history that's just wrong. And the part of the, the, the stereotype is that Nixon... Uh, made, uh, made uh, off-color remarks about Helen Gahagan Douglas that she was pinked down to her underwear and ran this low-rent, underhanded campaign against her. She was a liberal woman. And that just is, you know, Nixon did run a tough campaign, but she, uh, Helen Gahagan Douglas was a lousy candidate. She was sanctimonious. She would go to black churches, and she would say, I just so love the Negro people. I mean, she was condescending and patronizing. She was a bad candidate. Sounds like Democrats today. You don't have to react. Yeah, well, I'm not not putting you on the spot. (laughs) I I know limousine liberals. My mother was one. Uh, I'm familiar with the breed. So uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower picks the senator from California, young, vibrant, conservative, by the way, when you said conservative, I'm going to get to the, uh, obviously, my, my, my biggest issue about Nixon in a moment. But what, other than being anti-communist, was there anything specifically uh, conservative about Nixon while he was senator from California? He was not, he was against government bureaucrats. You know, he was conservative in that sense. He hated uh, Washington bureaucrats. When he was president, he went to war on Washington bureaucrats. Uh, so he was against big government. He didn't want to uh, get rid of Yeah, but he deal. made government tremendously bigger when he was president. He did because he was expedient. I mean, Nixon is complicated if nothing else. And he was politically expedient, and he was president in a liberal age when a lot of people believed in government activism, when Democrats controlled Congress, and he worked with them. He was an activist. He wanted to get stuff done. Oh, those are the done. magic words. Those are the dirty magic words to my ears. Yeah. Want to get stuff done in Washington? Uh oh. Yeah. But all right, I'll leave it at that. You know, no, have, it's a fair. Yeah. It's look, it's a fair point. I would, I would argue that some of the stuff he got done was just a complete disaster, like wage and price controls put the economy. Well, I think affirmative action is a disaster. I mean, every everything that he did is a disaster. I, I don't think I don't think the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, I, I do, I do. Okay, I understand, and I'm not expecting you to. But uh, but in, in the sum total of things, I think it is, and and many of the new rules. Let me so let me read that uh, to you, and, and we might as well get to that now, and then we'll go backwards. So this is from Max Boot, I, and, and, and I'd like you to react. One of the enduring mysteries of Richard Nixon is why someone who had such a hard right reputation turned out to be one of the most liberal presidents ever. He increased spending on Social Security, Medicare, the arts, and public broadcasting. He was, Mr. Thomas writes, by some measures, a bigger spender on social programs than LBJ had been. He presided over the extension of the Voting Rights Act, the passage of the Clean Air Act, and the creation of the White House Office of Consumer Affairs, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and Amtrak. 
He imposed wage and price controls in an unsuccessful effort to stop inflation, and in 1973 proposed the creation of a national health insurance scheme that anticipated Obamacare by almost four decades. Why is this man known as a conservative? (laughs) His rhetoric was very conservative. He was trying to peel away uh, 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 Democrats, blue-collar Democrats, who thought that... uh, uh, the liberal establishment had sold them out. He was getting Southern voters, a so-called Southern strategy, who had been, you know, we forget the South was solidly Democratic back in the 50s and 60s, and Nixon was trying to bring them over to the Republican side. He was against school busing, and his rhetoric was pretty anti-government, anti-Congress. But to answer your question, why did he do all that stuff? He was politically expedient. Nixon was an incredible politician. He was one of the most socially awkward people who ever lived, but he was an incredibly effective politician who won, you know, he was on five national tickets. Right, so he won uh, please. Four times. So what? He won the last time in a huge landslide. He did it by being politically expedient. Right, in other words, my election, Uber Alice. Pretty much. I mean, not entirely. I don't want to go too far in this direction. Oh, you, a... you can't go too far in my view. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more, my politics are mushier than yours. They're less clearly defined than yours. You know, I, I live in Washington, and so I sort of don't really have any politics anymore. But uh, Nixon wanted to get elected, and so he was president at a pretty liberal time with working with the Democratic Congress. So, for instance... Edmund Muskie, senator from Maine, uh, is looming as the potential Democratic candidate in 1972. Muskie's, the environmental movement's just coming on, and Muskie's running as the Green candidate. Nixon decides to outflank him, to actually get to the left of him, by embracing or proposing and, and, and establishing the Environmental Protection Agency. And it was a pretty foxy move, because it sort of deflated uh, Muskie, uh, Nixon ends up signing the Clean Air and Clean Water Act and doesn't even invite Muskie to the signing ceremony. Uh, he wants because he wants to, to to outfox him, to outflank him. That is expedient politics. Uh, Social Security. Nixon expands Social Security from just the elderly to the disabled. Well, that's for votes. He's he's buying votes. He wants he wants the votes of the disabled. I think it's pretty crass in some ways. Uh, Nixon's view was. There was a reason to elect him. He was better than the Democrats, better than the Kennedys. And if you had to get some liberal legislation, well, so be it. You were going to get some other things. And Nixon, in a second term, I do believe, in a second term, Nixon would have looked more like the president that you'd like. I think he was going to wage a a stronger war on the bureaucrats, uh, try to get a little bit of independence from the Democratic Congress, I think he, you know, had he not been run out of office in Watergate, and I should say deservedly so, I think he would have been a fairly conservative second-term president. So now, uh, back to understanding the man, and again, the psychological aspect. As I said, uh, there are two reasons people go for, generally speaking, for uh, the presidency or any major public office. They are driven ideologically, uh, and or they are driven to, uh, like, I think Bill Clinton is not so much ideological as he is, I want to be loved by as many people as possible. I think Barack Obama wants to, has an agenda, and 
that is the f- most important thing in his life as it was for Ronald Reagan. So this is not a liberal conservative divide. It's it's just a human divide. Where would you put Nixon? Uh, mostly on the personal drive. I mean, he had enormous insecurities, and of course that destroyed him. But it also gave him rocket fuel. Uh, you know, I, I, I love it that when he, he had one key insight, and that is there are more outsiders than insiders. When he went to college, there was a cool kids fraternity at Whittier College called the Franklins. So Nixon started a fraternity for the uncool kids. There are more of them. He was elected student body president. He had this insight, and it animated his politics all the way throughout, that he could represent the hopes and fears of, of outsiders. Now, sometimes he exploited their fears. He could pander to their fears. There's a bad side of this. But, you know... That's very intelligent. That makes so much sense. Nixon, Nixon was... Uh, in other words, I'm not, oh, I'm not born into or by, by, uh, by, by birth of ability. I'm not the winner. So for us non-winners, like like at Yale and Harvard, I'm gonna I'm gonna represent them. He did, and he called he coined a term called the silent majority. Oh, he and did. I thought Jerry Falwell did. Oh, he no, did the no. moral majority. That's, that's right. The moral that's majority. right. That's right. Yeah. Nixon is the silent majority, and it's you know the late '60s. The country's being torn apart, and there are riots in the cities, and the campuses are in flames. And the, you know, the East Coast intelligentsia is telling everybody what to do. And Nixon understood there were a lot of people out there who were quiet. And they weren't rioting, and they weren't demonstrating, and they weren't demanding. But they wanted to be respected. They wanted to bring order to the country. They wanted respect for the flag. Nixon was the first politician to wear an American flag in his lapel. And he, was, he really was a true patriot. They wanted respect for old American virtues. Nixon believed he represented that, and he said he stood for the silent majority. The folks who don't get a lot of respect from the New York Times, is that a way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. He, Nixon felt that himself, and he was yeah, because able to he never he, he wanted to go to Harvard, didn't he? <laughs> well, he got his offer to scholarship. He was smart. He was a top kid in his class in high school at Whittier High, and he got offered him a scholarship, but he couldn't go because his older brother had TB, was dying of TB, and his dad, who refused to take state benefits, refused to put him in the state sanatorium, needed the money to send the older brother out in the desert, which is what you did with TB patients back then. So there was no money to send Richard Nixon to Harvard. And uh, uh, Nixon used to j- joke about uh, the fact that he got into Harvard but ended up not going there to his Harvard buddies. Nixon was funny on the subject of Harvard. He said, he would say, no, no, those Harvard bastards in my cabinet, you know, I don't know nobody from Harvard. But then, of course, his chief foreign policy advisor was a Harvard professor, Henry Kissinger, and his chief domestic advisor was a Harvard professor named Daniel Patrick Moynihan. With Nixon, it was always important to, as his attorney general, John Mitchell, said, watch what we do, not what we say. Uh, Nixon would vent and carry on about this or that, but he often would do something slightly different. And although he was good about uh, uh, expressing his resentment of the East Coast establishment, you know, periodically he would hire them if he thought it was useful to him. How did uh, Eisenhower get along with him? Not too well. Uh, Eisenhower put him on the ticket in 1952, but then didn't really warm to him. Uh, I, I wrote a biography of Eisenhower, and, and Eisenhower's son, John, told me my father gave himself an order to like Dick Nixon. That's uh, cute. 
Nixon was not, you know. But, uh, not why, why, did he, why did he keep him on in 56? Because, uh, well, he tried to throw him off, actually, and, and drive him off. And Nixon, tough pilot that he is, just hung on there and, and wore him down. Nixon was a good vice president to Eisenhower. He was faithful, loyal, very good with foreign leaders. Eisenhower never warmed to him, but in the end, Eisenhower respected Nixon. Did Richard Nixon have close male friends? Well, B.B. Rebozo, uh, kind of an odd duck, uh, and the key to the Rebozo-Nixon friendship was that they never talked, or didn't talk much. They would spend hours sitting on a boat, and Nixon just, Nixon was a loner. He was a lonely guy. Was he, a, was he a loner in his marriage? Well, no. You know, I think that's misunderstood, too, because we see these photographs of Pat looking unhappy and strained. I intentionally ran a photo in my book of the young Pat. She's a knockout. She's beautiful. And that was a real marriage. Now, it's true that Watergate strained it by the end. Both of them were drinking too much, and, and it was, there was trouble there. But after Nixon was driven from office, he repaired his marriage. She was a real defender of his, and she quietly behind the scenes would buck him up. Uh, he was a difficult guy to be married to because he was a loner and kind of a strange man in some ways. But she loved him, and I think he loved her. Look at the photograph. I thought so, too. I thought that uh, there was a book on their marriage, and I think I had that author on. And, yeah, and, and, yeah, Will Swift wrote a book called Pat and Dick. Yeah, that's and right. It was a smart book because it pointed yeah. out that it was actually a pretty good marriage. That's right. And, and did, you, uh, ask, did you affirm that with the daughters? I, the daughters, in the end, did not. I got, the closest I got to Julie was she sent me directions to her house and then canceled on me with about a week to go. Uh, so I never spoke to her. But Julie wrote a wonderful book that nobody's read called Pat about her mother. It's actually a terrific book and very wise. Julie is a smart gal. I read some oral histories that she gave. Uh, I think I have a feel for how she and Tricia. I did talk to a, I have to be careful about this because it was off the record. I talked to somebody close to the family, so I have some sense of how they felt about all this. Is the uh, movie which I saw, and I, I'm, I'm terrible at these uh, names, it's just a, a, a synapse problem in my brain, I think. But uh, what was the, the famous one uh, about uh, his being interviewed on TV and, and self destructing? Oh, Ross Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. yeah. Was yeah. that accurate? No, well, unfortunately, the best scene uh, where uh, Frost, uh, excuse me, Nixon calls Frost late at night, that didn't happen. The best scene in the movie was made up. However, the rest of the movie was pretty accurate, and it, and it captured the general flavor of it. Uh, Nixon had a terrible time admitting that he had done anything wrong. Finally, under duress, he says, well, I gave him the sword, and they stuck it in. And, you know, I would have done the same. That was as close as he ever came to admitting that he did anything wrong. He never could bring himself to admit that he'd done something morally wrong. That's well, what, what exactly he did he do wrong? Did he order Watergate? No. Now, this is another place where history's all screwed up. He did not even know about the break-in. He found out about it after the fact. He thought it was nuts. His mistake in Watergate was not being this evil... Uh, manipulator. He was participated in the cover-up, but he did it because he was... He, Nixon was a shy person who disliked confrontation, personal confrontation. And he never was able to confront his aides, Mitchell, Haldeman, Ehrlichman. He just could not get him into one room and say, what happened? And we're going to just end this. He didn't really do anything about it until it was too late, until months had passed. 
By that time, there had been hush money paid, he, wait, he and the had, game was over. He had not met with Holderman and Ellickman and Mitchell? Not to talk about what actually happened. You, you can, can listen to it on the tapes. That's mind-blowing. talk around it. So he's, he's, he took the fall for these guys. I yes. mean, they, they got I mean, punished. Looking, I know he's that. He's the president. But he's responsible. No, no, no. But if he would have said, what if he would have said, I didn't know anything about this and it's terrible? What, what if you, what, what would have happened? He, 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 he did do that, but he did, then he needed to bring in a lawyer, right? A prosecutor. And he, that all ha- that happened, but it happened nine months too late, by which time Nixon had, himself had been involved in the cover up. So let me, again, I have to just pose it directly. Uh, Watergate happens. The break-in, Democratic National uh, Party headquarters, and uh, Nixon says that's disgusting. That is awful. Finds out it's his own people. Says this is wrong, and I have to fire these people. What would have happened? He would have survived. He exactly. would have had a second term, and yes. he was going to beat George McGovern. Right. You know, he was so far ahead of McGovern yeah. by. Uh, June of 1972, that he couldn't have lost to it. So he did a cover-up on something he didn't even do. Yes, he did. Uh, he Now, it's not, it's not quite as easy as that, because he would have been implicated in some other things that would have surfaced during the prosecution. But he, there's no question in my mind that had he, from the very beginning, brought in the lawyers and said, let's just let, the, let, let justice be done, he would have survived because his goal, his role in the Watergate break-in was non-existent. He didn't know about it. He created an atmosphere in the White House in which people did bad things, and he should be held responsible for that. But he did not actually authorize the break-in. All right, final question. Did he die an unhappy man? You know, that's a great question because I don't think Nixon ever could really be happy. His goal was to, to win one more than he lost. And even as a defeated, disgraced man, he clawed back the last 20 years of his life trying to be a good man to his family, but also an advisor to presidents, and he was. He, by the end, you know, Reagan was talking to him. Clinton, he became a pal of Bill Clinton, uh, sort of improbably. I guess Clinton had a sense of redemption or something, you know, or maybe just Clinton was amused by him. But Nixon wanted to be an elder statesman. He wrote eight books about foreign policy. He had dinners for journalists. He kind of slowly rehabilitated himself, even with the same reporters who put him down. It was admirable. Nixon was a guy who didn't quit. Uh, I mean, he, well, he quit the White House because he had to, but he fought back. He was a fighter. He struggled back, and I think and I hope, really, at the end, he had some sense that he had not just given up. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.